All right, so this morning we are going to start a Lenten series. So your bulletin says, Lent is season of preparation. There's two words I want to address uh, before we get into the text. And by the way, I think originally my plan was to do the Lord's Supper this week, but it seemed like there was already a lot on the plate to be able to start a whole new series and do the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to do the Lord's Supper next week. And then right now my plan is to do it again in another two weeks. Um, especially during a season of Lent, is in a very appropriate time to do the Lord's Supper. Two words I want to address, though. Liturgy and Lent. Lent is kind of a subset of liturgy. So I want to explain both those words in a much more abbreviated fashion, much quicker than what we did in 2019. The word liturgy literally comes from two words, public and working. So liturgy literally is the working of the people. And when you apply that to a church context, it's the work of the church. The work of the church to do what? I think the word that was in my mind mostly in 2019 when you look at it, the work of the church is to remember what Christ said was important to remember. So certainly when we participate in the Lord's Supper, that's the work of the people to remember his death. It's the work of the people to remember that he's promised to come again. All the liturgy that the church does, whatever that looks like, it's the work of the church, the work of the people of God to remember what God said needs remembering because our culture gives us lots of other things that want to occupy our minds and tell us we need to be dwelling on those things. Secondly, the word Lent is not a particularly spiritual word at all. It comes from an old Anglo-Saxon verb to lengthen, and it really just has to do with spring. The days are lengthening, and it just so happens then the church adopted that word. Uh, The days of spring are lengthening. Uh, The church is anticipating Christ's uh, week of passion. They are anticipating his resurrection from the dead, and so they adopted the term Lent to suit those purposes. Lent originally, it goes as far back as from what I'm reading, I'm not a historical expert, but from what I read, if it's right, It can be traced all the way back to the second century, and it was only three days, three days where the church observed Lent. Uh, They're observing, uh, focusing on the events that led to Jesus' crucifixion and then his resurrection on that one particular resurrection Sunday. By the fourth century, probably having to do with Constantine and, and the Christian religion being recognized by Rome, Lent was extended to 40 days. Uh, Jesus was tempted 40 days. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days receiving. There's no prescription in Scripture that says you have to observe Lent. There's no prescription in Scripture that says this is how many days it needs to be. The church just recognized it is good for us to remember these things. And the celebration of resurrection will be much more meaningful if you understand what it was the result of. It was the final outcome, and in some sense not even the final outcome, because then Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father 40 days later than that. But it is the culmination of all those events of his life, of his suffering, of his humiliation, of him being made sin so that sinners could be forgiven. So when we talk about Lent... This lengthening series is going to be six weeks, and we're going to focus on the seven words of Christ from the cross. 
These are words that occurred during a six-hour time period from about 9 o'clock on what we call Good Friday until 3 o'clock in the afternoon when he passed away. Roughly, I don't think they had timepieces that were as precise as ours, but roughly those six hours. The six Sundays are in Lent. They are not six Sundays of Lent because the church always celebrates Christ's resurrection on any Sunday. So there are 40 days of Lent, but those 40 days are Monday through Saturday. They don't include any Sundays. You always take a break so far as church tradition goes. Sunday is always a day of celebration. So we've got seven sayings to do. They're called the seven words of Christ. There's more than just a word. Seven sayings in six weeks. So that means I've got to double up somewhere, I think. That's the plan. Three of those words occur from nine to noon. And then the last four words all occur right at the very end. So let's take a quick look at those words. It starts off with, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's followed up by, Today you will be with me in paradise to one of the thieves. And then in John's gospel, the first two are in Luke. In John's gospel, you have Jesus saying to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then to John, the apostle, Behold your mother. So those all happen in those, in those first three hours. It's followed by three hours of darkness where there's silence. And so far as we know, so far as Scripture records, Jesus doesn't say anything. If he does, it was not seen fit to preserve for our purposes. Then in the last moments, the last little bit of time before Jesus died, you have four sayings. Matthew and Mark both record this. That's the only saying Matthew and Mark record. And it's not recorded by Luke's gospel and it's not recorded by John's gospel. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John's gospel then follows up with, I thirst and it is finished. And then Luke's gospel ends with his final words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Which sounds kind of interesting because there's a little bit of uh, nuance there or there will be a little bit of tension there, and that here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So that's where we're going to be the next six weeks leading up to, you know, and it just occurs to me, since we do a Good Friday service, I could add one of those words on Good Friday, but I'm not sure about that. That's where we're going to be the next six Sundays. So for your, our purposes today, turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. If you're using a pew Bible, you will find that on page 884. We will look at the first saying of Christ from the cross. Luke chapter 23, I'm going to pick up reading in verse 26, get a little bit of a running start as to what's happened. In the English Standard Version, it reads like this. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, this is before the cross, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, 
and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountain, fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So let me start off with, uh, let me start off with a, text, uh, a note regarding textual integrity or cons- in a consideration. In your Bible, if you have any kind of footnotes in your Bible at all, you probably have a footnote that this, this particular saying is not entirely clear whether Jesus said it, or it's not entirely clear whether he said it at this particular time. I checked as many resources as I possibly could in the last week. Uh, I couldn't find anybody that seriously disputed that that Jesus said this. They said, I think everybody said, I can't be 100% sure that he said this, at least at this time, in this moment, but everybody said it's worth treating as if he said it, and, and that seemed to be the consensus. I will offer... Two opinions. One is from Pillar New Testament Commentary Series. This is a newer series, very scholarly. Uh, James Edwards wrote this particular commentary for the Gospel of Luke. He explained it this way. The textual authenticity of the prayer, at least in its present location, is contested. It is contained in weighty manuscripts, but omitted by weightier and more diverse manuscripts. The first set of manuscripts, that is, those that contain it, is not as weak as often supposed. However, for among them exist all four text types, and they are augmented by important patristic evidence. In other words, the church fathers, if you look back in church history, they regarded this as something Jesus said from the cross. So there is internal textual evidence for this saying And the church fathers treated it as if, yes, Jesus did say this. External evidence cannot be the deciding factor in the authenticity of the prayer. For better reasons exist for a scribe to have omitted the saying, if it were original, than for a scribe to have added it, if it were not. So far as his analysis goes, he says, I can see good reasons why somebody would want to take it out, more than I can see good reasons why anybody would want to put it in. And he explains it this way. The fall of Jerusalem was widely considered in early Christianity as evidence of God's judgment on Jerusalem. Hence, copyists would be tempted to omit the saying, since the fall of Jerusalem would indicate that Jesus' prayer for its forgiveness had not been answered. Moreover, The prayer seems to run counter to Jesus' previous predictions of the judgment awaiting Jerusalem. We also can easily imagine a scribe believing that some sins should not be forgiven, omitting the verse. Such reasons argue for the authenticity of the prayer and its subsequent omission by later copyists, whereas reasons of equal weight cannot be adduced for the prayer's inauthenticity and its later addition. So I run the risk of boring everybody if I go too long on this, but I'm going to give you one more witness. This is a a really scholarly series. This was produced in 1978. The New International Greek Testament Commentary, 
Howard Marshall is quite the Greek scholar. He explains it this way. The textual evidence of verse 34 is very uncertain. He then goes through all the pros and cons. Did Jesus really say this? And then he eventually concludes, the balance of the evidence thus favors acceptance of the saying as Lucan, although the weight of the textual evidence against the saying precludes any assurance in opting for this verdict. He's not going to die on that hill, but there's every reason to believe, yes, Jesus said this from the cross. So based upon that, I'm going to proceed as if this is in fact what he said. Here's what we want to consider looking at this saying from the cross. Five questions, and then I'm going to set it up before we address the five. Number one, why doesn't Jesus simply forgive these persons himself? Why does Jesus say, Father, forgive them? Why doesn't Jesus just pronounce forgiveness and be done with it? Secondly, for whom is Jesus praying for forgiveness? When Jesus says, forgive them, who is them that he's asking for forgiveness for? Question number three, are these persons really ignorant of the crime and injustice? He says they know not what they do. Don't they know what they're doing? Question number four, was Jesus' prayer answered? Did the Father forgive them? Whoever the them was that Jesus asked for? And then the last question, which in some sense probably should be first, but it'll spoil the other questions if I deal with that one first. What is forgiveness? What is forgiveness? So those are the five questions we're going to look at this morning. Let's add some clarity and depth to the scene before we address those five questions. Back up again just a little bit to set up uh, the answers to those five questions. It starts off in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. I find it interesting, and lots of commentators find this interesting as well, so I think I'm on good ground, that Scripture really doesn't provide all the gruesome, gory details that go along with crucifixion. The Gospel writers say they crucified him. That's not the tradition I grew up with. My, I grew up at Pilgrim Lutheran Church as a young boy, and then my church tradition is my, my parents got saved out of a dead liturgy, uh, not to say that everybody at Pilgrim Lutheran Church is involved in dead liturgy, but it at least was for my parents, and they were not believers. They just were Lutherans by, by their upbringing, by their tradition. So they got saved through radio ministry, really, and started going to a Baptist, Baptist churches. Uh, we wound up during my high school years at Grace Baptist Church, and at Grace Baptist Church, I could count on once or twice every year there would be a message uh, detailing all the gruesomeness of what is involved in a crucifixion. Because by that time, different people, medical people, people with certain information and background, they would talk about what your, how your body breaks down when you're crucified and the loss of blood and, and how it affects your organs. And, and it would be a very tearful sermon and it would be very gory. And, and that's what was emphasized for whatever purposes. But it's interesting to me, the Gospels just say they crucified him. And it doesn't provide all those details. I think God could have communicated those details if that's what was most important. But he didn't. 
And so it leads to a question that I haven't shown you yet, which would be, what do the Gospels emphasize? And what would be really interesting if Lent didn't include only six Sundays would be to just, if I'd taken all of our time and then you guys would go home with homework and and you would pick your Gospel and you would read your Gospel. You wouldn't have to read the whole Gospel, just read the the account of his, his... uh, the events leading up to his death and the crucifixion, and, and you're asking yourself, what is being emphasized by the gospel writer if it's not the gruesomeness of the actual crucifixion? What's being emphasized? And I think what you would find, probably, I think in all four gospels, I didn't check all four gospels this past week, but number one, you would find an emphasis on prophetic fulfillment. What is taking place is in fulfillment of what God had determined would take place, what the prophets had spoken. Isaiah 53 is all over the crucifixion account, which we just came out of Isaiah, though Isaiah 53 was a good while back. But over and over, things are, were either a direct fulfillment of what a prophet said or it's an allusion to what a prophet said. It's a reference to what a prophet said. What the gospel writer wants you to know is this is the plan of God. These are the purposes of God for redemption, for salvation, being accomplished at this time, in this moment, on that cross. The second thing that I think you will find emphasized is to do with Jesus, but it's less his physical suffering, more his humiliation and shame. What is emphasized more than the physical aspects are the mocking and the taunting and the calling for Jesus to save himself. That is really emphasized strongly. And then coupled with that is Jesus' resolve not to give in or to answer back to the mocks and the taunts. That seems to be emphasized as well. So Jesus on the cross is demonstrating his full deity and his perfect humanity. In light of everything else that's taking place, he is resolved to accomplish his Father's will at this time, in these moments. The third thing that I think you will find emphasized, which is, at least in my own mind, is the most surprising of all, or the least likely of all, the third thing that you'll find emphasized is who's there. Who's there. So if, if we skip back, and look at some of these verses again. In verse 27, it says, There followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Verse 32, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. Verse 35, The people stood by watching. Still in verse 35, The rulers scoffed. Verse 36, The soldiers also mocked. Verse 39, one of the criminals railed. Verse 40, the other rebuked him. Verse 47, the centurion saw what had taken place. And then in verse 48, and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, that word spectacle in the Greek is where we get our word theater. So all the crowds that had assembled for this theatric event when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. It's very interesting to me. It's like Jesus is the one suffering. He's the one dying. And so much of what the Gospels write about is who's there. 
Like, I don't really care who's there. But that's really important to the gospel writer. Crowds, Jewish leaders, soldiers, some women, some disciples. You've got all these people there. Why do the gospels emphasize that? And the answer is pretty clear. Philip Carey made this really clear to me in one of his audio uh, courses from great books. Makes it very clear. The gospel writers are always putting in the reader's mind, where are you? Where are you in that scene? Are you the mocker? Are you standing by? Are you following? Are you criticizing? Are you calling for Jesus to save himself? Where are you? The gospel writer, all the gospel writers, as they write the gospels, are writing it in such a way that answers oftentimes aren't as explicit as to who Jesus is as we want them to be. But the gospel writer wants you to answer the question, who do you think he is? Where are you in this story? What is your response to what is happening? And so for the gospel writers, who is there becomes an important component to this unfolding narrative. And Jesus said. The word and, a little conjunction, is used thousands of times in the Greek New Testament, as you might well imagine. It's not always translated and. In fact, many Bibles, I think, at least the Bibles that I use most often, don't, use, don't translate the conjunction and. They translate it, then Jesus said, which I kind of like because it kind of draws a more of an more of an intentional contrast between they crucified him, then Jesus said. Man at his worst, at his lowest moment, at his most shameful, despicable moment that they are crucifying the Lord of glory, and in that moment, then Jesus said. He didn't say, Is that, this, this saying isn't reserved for when it's all getting started, like, you're going to regret you ever did this, you ever laid a hand on me, it's at his weakest, lowest moment, then Jesus said. At that moment, Jesus said. It's an, it's an amazing fact that Jesus lives out what he's preached all along. Jesus has preached the forgiveness, forgiving your enemies, blessing those who curse you. You know, I find it so easy to dispense advice for everybody else. I find it much more difficult to take my advice. It's much harder to live out what I tell everybody else or what I want to tell everybody else what they should do. Jesus not only dispenses what is true and wise, he lives it out in this worst of moments. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But if you're one of the fortunate ones this morning, different Bibles have different... English translations have different strengths and weaknesses. If you're one of the fortunate ones that have a New American Standard Bible, your Bible renders it differently yet. Your Bible reads, But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And that's really quite accurate, the was saying, because it's an imperfect verb. It's ongoing action. All my other translations, it's Jesus said it. It's out there. It's done. It's over. But it's imperfect, meaning he's saying on repeated occasions, time and again, he's saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And again, and again. 
Jesus began his ministry praying. He ends his ministry praying. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, when Jesus is baptized, he enters public ministry. It says, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. We don't know what he prayed, but he prayed at his baptism. The heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you're my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus enters ministry praying, he closes ministry praying, Father forgive them, they know not what they do. In both cases, Jesus is interceding for sinners. Sinners who are not reconciled to God. Sinners who are stained by their own sin and guilt. Jesus wasn't baptized because he needed to, uh, to enter into a baptism for the repentance of sins. He had no sins. He was identifying with people who were sinners. In this moment, Jesus is identifying and, and interceding for those who are participating in an act of, of rebellion, treachery, trespass, sin against him. And he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. All right, let's look at our questions. Number one, why doesn't Jesus simply forgive these persons himself? Uh, if you want to flip back in your Bibles, it's, you're in Luke's Gospel anyway, so you don't have to go back far. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 861. These are passages you know well. The, word for, the same word for forgiven is used in both of these passages. I'm just going to read the first one for time's sake because I know I'm going to run out of time otherwise. But on... Occasions in Jesus' ministry, Jesus forgave people. So in Luke chapter 5, and uh, I'll just jump in right at verse 18. Luke chapter 5, verse 18. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the one who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And then in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, you'll find the same thing where Jesus pronounces forgiveness. He can do it. He's done it before. So why on this occasion doesn't Jesus just say, I forgive you? Why does he ask the Father to forgive? And I think the answer has to be this idea of forgiveness of sins as a divine prerogative, which he exercised. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he tells the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Man, your sins are forgiven you. He can do that. But right now, on the cross, he's suffering in a sinner's place. And in his perfect humanity, he has relinquished the divine right to pronounce forgiveness of sins. He entrusts that to his Father. I think there's another reason that will play in when we get to the end of today's teaching. But for right now, that will suffice. Yes, as the Son of Man, as, as uh, the eternal Son of God, as the Son of God, as Christ, Lord of glory, he has divine right to forgive sins, and he exercised that right. But now, in a sinner's place, 
He's suffering in perfect humanity, and he entrusts forgiveness to his father. I think that's the answer to the first question. The second question, for whom is Jesus praying for forgiveness? You may or may not be surprised that commentators write a lot on this. It's almost a debate uh, with a lot of commentators. Some commentators are very adamant that this is who he's praying for, and others are like, it includes this group, and, and there's a little bit, I don't think anybody will die on that hill, but, but it seems important to a lot of writers. I know in the immediate context, if you want to keep it strictly in the immediate context, he's praying for the Roman soldiers. I know it includes them. The text looks like this. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, that's Roman soldiers, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Those are Roman soldiers. The Roman soldiers are the ones that, with the hammer and the nails and nailing the man's wrists into the cross. Both of Jesus and the two criminals. The Roman soldiers are the ones at the foot of the cross that are are gambling for an article of clothing that belonged to Jesus. That's Roman soldiers. And Jesus says, I mean, if you include all those theys and thems, I know he's praying for the Roman soldiers. Forgive these Roman soldiers. They know not what they do. But I'm not going to stop there. And it partly is in thanks to the New American Standard Bible. Because Jesus was saying that over and over. And the next verse says, And the people stood by, watching, The ruler scoffed at him, saying he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked, coming up and offering him sour wine. I think if you include all the parties that are around the cross, Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It starts with the Roman soldiers, for sure. I don't know how you could possibly eliminate them. But I think it includes the Jews. I think it includes the crowds. They know not what they're doing. Question number three, are these persons really ignorant of what they're doing? The crime and the injustice. I mean, you've got Jewish leaders that arrested Jesus under cover of darkness because they paid off Judas Iscariot, an insider into Jesus' group. They held trial, which was illegal according to Jewish law, according to Jewish protocol. They're looking for false witnesses to testify against Jesus. And then finally, when they decide Jesus is guilty of blasphemy, they take him to Pilate because they don't want to be responsible for crucifying this man. They take him to Pilate and they trump up or dream up new charges that were not even talked about. He's telling people not to be loyal to Rome. They're encouraging people not to pay taxes. He's he's leading a rebellion. Where did that come from? These Jewish leaders are involved in all kinds of treachery and deceit and injustice. They don't know what they're doing. They knew exactly what they were doing. Besides the Jewish leaders, you've got Pontius Pilate, who in Luke's gospel, three times says, look, I've examined him. I find no fault with him. He's not guilty of these charges. But eventually, he signs off on getting him crucified. He doesn't know what he's doing. He he knows he's innocent. He knows, I think it's Matthew's gospel, he knows that he's only been delivered over to him for a trial because the Jews are envious of him. 
They know that their own positions of power and authority are in jeopardy. Pilate knows all that. He knows he's, he's signing off to have a man killed who he knows is guilty of no crime. And Jesus says, they don't know what they're doing. And then besides that, you've got even one of the criminals. If you look at verses 39 to 41, 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you were under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Even these criminals who may have known little to nothing about Jesus prior to this point, after they've seen what's transpired leading up to this point, even one of the criminals knows Jesus isn't guilty. Even one of the criminals knows, look, we're here because we deserve it. Let's face it. But that's not true of Jesus. Jesus' prayer. They don't know what they're doing. So how are we understand? How are we to understand they don't know what they're doing? On one hand, they know exactly what they're doing. They've planned it. They've purposed it. They're carrying out their evil designs with great intent and relentlessness. But there's another sense in which they have no idea what they are doing. They have no idea what God is accomplishing in these moments through their evil actions to accomplish his own good purposes. 1 Corinthians, page 952 in your Bible, if you're using a pew Bible, and it is worth turning to this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. An interesting tension is being developed between what they intend to do, which is wholly wicked, and what God, in fact, is intending and purposing and accomplishing through their evil actions. They have no idea what is really taking place, even though they know exactly what they want to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not the wisdom of this age, or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers, that's none of the high priests, that's none of the elders, that's none of the scribes, that's none of the Pharisees, that's not Pontius Pilate, that's not King Herod. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They weren't participating in some plan saying, we're fulfilling God's prophecies. We're fulfilling in God's plans of redemption. 
What they were doing was wholly motivated by their own sinful desire. If they'd understood what God was accomplishing and that God was going to gain victory in all this, they never would have crucified him. But he says they didn't understand. If you were to skip back just to chapter 1 and verse 25 of Corinthians, Paul makes this wonderful statement, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. God is accomplishing his purposes. They have no idea that's what's taking place. You could also turn to, I'm not going to look at these passages, but in Acts chapter 3, where we've been in Sunday school for quite some time, and, and then in Acts chapter 13, there's this idea where, where Peter, and in Acts 13 it would be Paul, makes it very clear that you, you had no idea what you were doing. You didn't realize what you were doing when you were carrying out your evil intent. You didn't realize God was accomplishing and demonstrating the worthiness and the, and the glory and the holiness and the beauty of the eternal Son. Whom you crucified, he rose from the grave. God raised him from the grave. But they didn't understand. They didn't understand all of that. So as Jesus' prayer answered, and did the Father forgive them? Was his prayer answered? Did the Father forgive? Um, I can't remember what my next slide is, if it's going to give away too much or too little. Oh, okay, that's not bad. So, did, was the prayer answered? This is kind of an interesting point, and this is where it'll, you, you can disagree with me as we move forward through this point. I think the prayer was answered, and then if you ask, on what, in what sense was it answered? How was it answered? Uh, I, I have a problem with what a lot of commentators write. Because what a lot of commentators write, like if we say, the Jewish leaders, were they forgiven? They'll never be held accountable for what they've done? Pontius Pilate, not held accountable? Were two thieves on the cross going to enter into paradise because they were forgiven? Or was one? who recognized Christ in that moment. So what a lot of commentators do, and I understand why they do this, and in some sense on different occasions I think it would be more appropriate, but they would say the forgiveness that Jesus prays for is contingent upon their receiving it. And if they don't receive it, they're not forgiven. So there's great potential in this moment. It's a moment of great possibility, but nothing, in fact, is certain, and nothing, in fact, is sure. And that doesn't seem to fit the narrative to me where Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Is he praying for the great possibility? Or in fact, is he praying for something that is in fact accomplished and settled because Jesus prayed it? And that leads me to the last question, what is forgiveness? And this is the key, and I have this as uh, thin ice because I'll be honest with you, I looked at a lot of resources. I can't find any resources that really fully support the take I have on this. I have uh, one very good source that refers to it, but doesn't address it, uh, doesn't really engage with it. He just kind of mentions it in passing with either, without ever passing real verdict on it. To me, this makes perfect sense, but because I can't find a lot of support that, that lends itself to I'm wrong, uh, because I'm not here to discover and invent new things. It's not so important 
that you're either inside of Orthodox Christianity or you're outside Orthodox Christianity is just, it is what it is, so I can be wrong and I, I think I'm still okay. But let's talk about what is forgiveness. In the New Testament, there are two words that can be translated forgiveness. The first of those words, which is the word that's used by Jesus here, it's also the same word that was used when the paralytic was let down and Jesus says, I forgive you. It's the word that most of the gospel writers use. In fact, it's the more common of the two words used for forgiveness. But the interesting thing is, it's not usually even translated forgiveness because the range of meaning is so broad. So the first word is this. It means to send off, let go, disregard, or remit. So I can, give you, I can give you every use of it in the entire New Testament. Let me give you the... Sometimes an interesting way to look at a word is, is how is it used the very first time in the New Testament? The very first time it's used in the New Testament is Jesus going to John the Baptist to be baptized. And John is like, John is put off like, I need to be baptized by you. Like, I'm not sure this should be happening. And Jesus says, let it go. Let it happen. Let it happen. And so John lets it happen. John baptizes Jesus. It doesn't make sense to him. He doesn't understand exactly what's taking place. The old King James says, suffer it to be so. Let it go. Disregard, disregard your objections. Let it happen. He, it's, it's not a word of forgiveness. It's a word of just let it go. The second time, actually that's used twice in Matthew chapter 3. Then in chapter uh, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is tempted by the devil unsuccessfully. And then in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 11, it says, the devil left him. You wouldn't translate that the devil forgave him. I forgive you for not giving in to my temptation. But the devil said, is going to, he, he sends himself off. He lets it go. He's going to look for another time, another time, another place, another opportunity. But he lets it go for now. That's how the word is most often used in the New Testament. If I were to tell you the first times it's ever used in Luke's gospel, the first time the word is ever used in Luke's gospel is Jesus rebuking Peter's mother-in-law who has a fever. He rebukes the fever and the fever left her. It's not a word of forgiveness, but the fever left. It was remitted. It went away. Uh, the second time it's ever used in Luke's gospel regarding uh, some of his disciples, they left everything and followed him. They left everything and followed him. That's the first word that's used. Uh, or the, the first, yeah, that's used for forgiveness. The second word that's used, almost never in the Gospels, but there are a couple occasions. In fact, I think the only Gospel that ever uses the second word is Luke's Gospel, and he uses it two or three times. So it's a less common word, but it more closely images our own idea of what forgiveness is. The second word... Kerizomai means to bestow favor freely and unconditionally. The first word emphasizes a little bit more of a negative thing. A debt is removed. It's let go. The second word is more of a positive word. It's favor gained. Uh, the word charis, grace, comes from this word for forgiveness. It's a gracious bestowment. That's the second word for forgiveness. So you've got those two words. Jesus uses the first word, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Uh, 
It's not hard for me to imagine this because these are very vivid memories, and it probably had mostly to do with Ryan, my son Ryan, uh, when he was growing up and in high school, and he had one particularly bad year at a, at a private school in Decatur. And at that very bad year, uh, he didn't fit in because he didn't come from the same background and tradition and didn't share some of the same values and interests of the other people on the basketball team. And so uh, he was belittled, he was made fun of, uh, it was, I would call it a bullying situation. And there were a couple other instances just in, in his life in general where as a dad, I can tell you, I would not be very, what I want to do in a situation like that is punch somebody's lights out so fast, but Ryan would be like, like, let it go, let it go. Like, he doesn't want me to do that. I think that's what's taking place here. I think God the Father, looking at his son in these moments, and this mocking and the scorning, Jesus says, let it go, let it go. And the Father does. I don't think this is a gracious bestowment of goodwill. I think this is the Father letting it go because that's what the Son wants, because the Son is accomplishing his Father's perfect will on the cross. This makes perfect sense to me. I don't know why more commentators don't see uh, the difference in these two words, but all I can say is they don't. I think that's what's happening. That's my take. That's my understanding. Let it go. And the Father lets it go. Let me end with some practical considerations, then I'm going to open it up to you. Very quickly, practical considerations. Number one, sin is rooted in ignorance. We have an idea, to some extent, that ignorance and guilt are mutually exclusive, and that is not true. There used to be a saying I grew up with, ignorance of the law is no excuse uh, anymore, I think you can know the law and you still think you have an excuse. But it used to be ignorance of the law is no excuse. So sin is rooted in ignorance. Number one, we're ignorant of sin's offensiveness to God. I think, I don't, I mean, Paul's a great example, right? Paul, when he first becomes a believer, he struck down the Damascus Road. His life is changed. He starts off in his early letters, he's like, I'm the least of the apostles. Like, there are, if you, if you want to look at it as more deserving, and, and I know that's a crass term because nobody's deserving, but in some sense, Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. And then later in his ministry, by the time he writes Ephesians, Paul says, I got it wrong. I'm the least of the saints. Out of all the believers, that I, I'm the least of the saints. And then when he writes his last letter to Timothy, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. It doesn't sound like he's making much progress. He started off least of the apostles. He winds up the chief of sinners. I think as he understands more of his own sin, he understands how great an offense it is to a holy God, whether you realize it or not. And if in my life I'm not understanding how offensive my sin is to God, I fear I'm not making much progress. Secondly, sin is ignorant of its corruption on itself. We think we can manage sin and we can't. We think we've got it under control, that we can, we can pull the strings as to how we control our sin and we're wrong. Sin enslaves and it destroys. 
It's offensive to God more than we realize. It's destructive to us more than we realize. Thirdly, we're ignorant of its corruption on others. That's why the Bible says sin is visited upon the third and the fourth generation. The sins that I'm most prone to are probably the sins that are going to crop up in, in my family's life as they, see, as they are prone to those same sins because I've done a really good job modeling those sins, whether it's selfishness or whether it's anger or whether it's lust or whether whatever that sin is. It affects other people. It affects the church, but it affects those that are closest to you as well. And lastly, we're ignorant of its dreadful consequences. We think not only can we manage the sin, we can manage the effect of sin, the eventual consequence, and we can't. We just can't. It's that bad. What are your comments and questions? Carrie. Um, give me that a little louder. Can we safely assume that God struggled to forgive? Uh, I would. I'm never. Com- I don't know that I would be comfortable using the word "struggled with God." Uh, the Father is pleased to honor His Son's request. There is a sense in which God. I mean, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. There is no man who has ever lived the life Jesus just lived in perfect obedience to the Father. There is no one more undeserving of what is taking place than Jesus on the cross. So there is a sense, because of the character of God, where judgment ought to fall so fast, so quick, they wouldn't even know what hit them. But the the son is let it go. I mean, Jesus was told, or Jesus said in the garden, wasn't it Jesus that said, Don't you know that I could ask and my father would send however many legions of angels to deliver me right now? I think if Jesus wanted to say, I'm out, like, he could have. But Jesus is there to live in perfect obedience to his father. It includes this plan of redemption. He knows God is portrayed as a father within the Trinity. And that father image, I know what a father image is better than I know what a mother image is. But I know what a father image is and I know how I want to defend my own. And I can only imagine, in some sense, the father is more than willing to defend his son in this moment and make things right. And the son says, let it go, let it go. Cindy? What if he had not said that? (laughs) I can hardly understand, try to give you an explanation of what did, was said. I can't even imagine... (laughs) I mean, God's purposes are going to be accomplished. So they're going to, I mean, this is going to be accomplished whether Jesus said that or whether he didn't say that or whether Jesus has said different things. I just know that this is the record that God saw fit to preserve for us. He wants us to know this. He wants us to know this. So, um, I mean, I do, go ahead. So, when I'm in a situation a few years ago as well, I don't remember exactly when, besides doing a, sitter, seri- a little series on liturgy, I know that I spent like three weeks on forgiveness, two or three weeks on forgiveness. And what I came away with, if I were to give you uh, the, the, the cliff notes, I always like saying that, but if I were to give you the cliff notes on forgiveness, it seems very clear to me that there are two aspects to forgiveness. There is 
Positional forgiveness and transactional forgiveness. Positional forgiveness is I am putting myself in a position where I want, I want forgiveness to take place. Like, I'm open, I'm available, I'm ready, I want to work through the process, but the transaction requires two people. So for, forgiveness in the biblical sense really isn't accomplished until the transaction takes place. Right now, God the Father is in a position of forgiveness. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But the transaction requires an act of faith. It requires an act of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. So a transaction has to take place, but the Father's position right now is a position of forgiveness. Eventually that door will close. Joe? This, this is the one Jesus uses here. This is the one that's used almost entirely in the Gospels. And oftentimes, like I, I did show you, in senses that really don't apply to forgiveness, just this idea of sending off, letting go, leaving, removing something. It can be used in the sense of forgiveness. Cindy? Uh, what does he say? Oh, oh, yeah. Yes, this, it's this word. Yeah. I was thinking Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So, yeah, he uses this word uh, uh, in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts even as we forgive those who sin. That's why, that's why in some versions of the Lord's Prayer it's forgive us our debtors as we forgive the, you know, because the debt is, is this idea of, like, taking off the books. Yes. Uh, Lori. Um, well, on one hand, I think they know exactly what they're doing. <laughs> like, like, they know what they're doing. Or, they don't know what God is accomplishing in what they're doing, but they know what they're Pilate knows he's innocent. He says three times, he's innocent. I've examined him. He's guilty of nothing. And he's going to sentence him to death. So he knows he's doing that. He knows it's wrong. The criminals know it's wrong. He doesn't deserve to be on this cross. They know that. Uh, on some sense, sure, sin and deception. I mean, I can't so separate the two that, you know, that is completely in this category. I mean, deception is always involved with sin. Sin is always deceptive. But on some sense, they have an awareness of what they're doing. They've planned it out. They've intended it. They arrested Jesus by night. It wasn't by accident. It was on purpose. Uh, They're ignorant as to what God is doing. They know what they're doing. They're not ignorant about that, but they are ignorant what God is accomplishing in what they're doing. Uh, by, by reducing it on some level to a matter of ignorance, that's why in Acts, especially Acts chapter 3, that's why Peter is able to say, I know you didn't understand what you were doing. Because in the Old Testament, there's no sacrifice for a trespass for a high-handed sin. In the Old Testament, there's a sacrifice for, for sin, but not a trespass, not a shake my fist at God, I don't care what he says, I'm going to do what I want. There's no, there's no sacrifice for that in the Old Testament. There's only sacrifices, they're called sin offerings. Uh, they're kind of sins of ignorance, sins of not fully understanding. So Peter preaches the message, you did this ignorantly, 
You didn't understand what God was accomplishing. But now we know what God was accomplishing because he rose the son from the grave. And forgiveness is now, is now pronounced in this person. And if they still reject, now there's no hope, which is Hebrews. Now there's no hope. If you crucify again the Lord of glory, now you understand what God was accomplishing, fulfilling Levitical priesthood, fulfilling, fulfilling he's a better sacrifice, he's a better priest, it's perfect once for all time. Once you've been given all that information, if you still aren't going to submit to him, now you've got no hope. Hebrews offers no hope. No more, you can't get off on we didn't understand what God was doing. Peter gives them that in Acts chapter 3. Uh, Larry? So we're saying that the yeah. I, I think for this, yeah, for this, I mean, I could go one of two ways. It's either he's going to let it go right now. He's not going to intervene. He's not going to be like, run the heavens and come down and this is, or, or it could be at the final judgment they will never answer for this because the Father was accomplishing his will. I would be very comfortable with that. Yeah. Let, Sarah? Jesus is the, yeah, uh, intercedes in a way that Moses couldn't. Because Moses, on some level, wanted to give his life for the people. And he can't, just like Paul can't. But Jesus could, and he did. And he intercedes. And he's like, let it go. Let it go. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.